I, this morning, I'll try to try to be brief, and then we'll wrap up this morning uh, with with communion. But I want to set up the next couple weeks. The next couple weeks, we're going to be covering the I am statements from the life of Jesus, and you'll see that uh, on the back to school cards that we had printed. And, and my goal this morning is to just simply set this set this up for you. That as we talk over the next couple weeks uh, from the I am statements from the life of Jesus, that in each and every one of those statements is also, you know, I am, but it's a reminder that, that I am not. Because as we read the Bible, so many times, you know, we, we, are, you know, we can tend to uh, think a little bit more highly of ourselves, to think that you and I are, are providers, that you and I can, can heal, and, and just so many different things. But in each one of these amazing profound I am statements as I was reading them off and on over the last couple weeks the Lord just kept reminding me Zach you're not you're not this you're not that you can't do this that's why I am who I am so we'll be covering those over the next uh, several weeks Uh, but this morning just by way of overview would you stand with me and turn to the classic verse found in John 3 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So you'll see it on the screen this morning. Let's read this together. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Jesus, we we pray that over the next few minutes, that we'll see you through your word this morning in just a special way. Pray you would challenge us, that you would equip us, that you would encourage us, as only you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. John 3.16 is probably the most quoted and memorized uh, scripture it's the scripture that you'll find commonly on t-shirts. You'll see it held up in, in the stands at a sporting event, or perhaps it's uh, under a, an athlete's eye or on a garment of clothing as they're giving an interview. And it's kind of become this, I would say, like the arms to the gospel, that God loves us. Not only that he loves us, but he's a God that, that he gave his one and only son that that whoever believes in him will, will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. And I believe it's become kind of like the, the arms of the gospel as we share with people that God, God loves them and God has a plan and a, and a purpose for their lives. And unfortunately, I think sometimes this wonderful verse in many people's lives has, has kind of lost a little bit of the significance to it. And yet we look from the life of of Jesus who said these words, and like it's the arms around the gospel, and yet on the other hand, there were some very, very profound statements that came from Jesus' lips as he described who he was. And yet the reality is so many of us, as we share the gospel, we're going to talk to people about Jesus, we will share John 3.16, and yet there are so many other profound and provocative statements that came from the life of Jesus. And to be honest with you, they're just as controversial and outrageous 2,000 years later as they were when they came from the lips of Jesus. They're shocking. They're unsettling. 
And they're disturbing to people that are far from God. And this morning, what I want to do is kind of share three of these particular statements that are bold, that are strong from God's word. We'll talk a bit about the context of them, and then we'll continue on over the next couple weeks from the I am statements of Jesus. The first outrageous statement that came from the lips of Jesus was this statement, that Jesus said that he was God. Now, so many uh, that are here today, you've, you've grown in, up in church, or perhaps you've been in church for quite some time, and when you hear the statement that Jesus said that he was God, it doesn't have kind of the punch factor that it did many years ago. But if you think about it for a, state, for a second, if somebody walked up to you and looked you in the eye and said that I embody and I am God, you would kind of say that's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And yet so many of us, we've heard this, this statement for many, many years. And basically for Jesus' listeners, when this statement came and it was a very strong, it was a very provocative, it was an outrageous statement. And so please turn to John 14, verse 9. And in the context here, Jesus is, is talking and he's comforting his disciples because that's one of the things that he does. He comforts you and I in our lives. It's right after he washed the disciples' feet, he predicted his betrayal and Peter's Denial And Jesus gathers his disciples, the ones that he's imparting, the ones that he's investing in. And he gathers them together and he says this. He says, you don't need to be troubled. He says, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus looks his disciples in the eyes and he says, when you look at me, you're really looking at your Father, God, who is in heaven was a very provocative and outrageous statement. And here's the context. Jesus is responding to a question that's found in verse 8 by Philip. And Philip says to Jesus, as, as he's comforting, as he's gathered the disciples around, he says, Lord, would you show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Do you ever pray for a sign or say, God, would you do this? And that would just be, be enough, like there's ever enough, Right? Philip's been with Jesus for, for many years from the time that he had, had been called. In John chapter 1, verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the one whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of, of Joseph. And so Philip here is basically, he's, he's speaking about his own personal kind of need for reassurance. He opens his mouth and he asks this question to Jesus, he says, would you just show us the Father? It's not necessarily for the public's sake, but he just kind of wants this piece or this glimpse of, of information. And his words kind of cut to the chase. And basically, he's, he's, he's saying this, if I were to paraphrase it. He's saying, Jesus, I've been sitting around and listening to you for quite some time. You talk a lot about going away somewhere. You talk a lot about going and preparing a place for us. And that really, if you didn't mean it, you, you really would have never said so. I never interrupted you. I never tried to interject. But, but you talk a lot about, 
about your father that's out there in, in heaven. We believe that he has houses. We believe that he has fine clothes and rubies and diamonds and all of these things. But, but if you really want me to understand this thing about the father, would you just give me a glimpse of the father? If you do that, that'll be, that'll be sufficient. That'll be enough for me and, and the other guys that are sitting around here. Now, I'm glad Jesus doesn't, doesn't think like me. Because my disciple, if he's asking me this question, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Philip, you've been with me for three and a half years. Let me break this down. You watched me turn water into wine. You watched me, you know, basically heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. You watched me feed 5,000. You watched me walk on water. I opened deaf ears. I'm the one casting out demons. I'm making ways out, out of where there's no way. And, and now on top of that, all of a sudden, you want some special personal glimpse into the Father. And if you, if you get that glimpse, it'll be sufficient. He says, don't you even know me, Philip, in verse 9? Even after I've been among you such a long time. And so we see here that being around Jesus isn't isn't enough. And I think in this verse, there's there's a caution, there's a warning to us that, that knowing Jesus is more than just being around him. That Jesus is responding not just to Philip. I believe he's responding to the disciples. He's responding to you and I. He's saying, aren't you aware of who I really am? Because there are people that have been in church for years. There are people that have gone and they've done great things as if doing things for God is enough. They can volunteer, they can give, they can serve, they can go, they can be in church and be around Jesus, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that you know him. And Philip's saying, can't you just give me this special glimpse to the Father? And Jesus basically saying, if you see me, then you've seen the Father. He says, anyone, so all people who have the opportunity to see Jesus, really, they're seeing the Father. In fact, he goes on later in chapter 10 of John 30. John ten thirty. he says, actually earlier, he says that the Father and I are one. So when you put these two statements together, Jesus is saying that the Father and I are one, God and I are one. If you've seen the Father, it's because you have seen me. And he says this to his close disciples. So many people want to know what is what's God really like? Well, look at Jesus. They have this picture out there of a God that's, that's angry, this God that is judgmental, this God that is just coming down on people. And yet when you look at the life of Jesus, who says, when you see me, you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing God in his character and his nature. Bill Johnson says that Jesus is, is perfect theology. Part of this reason that it was such a big statement was that people were waiting back then for God to send a savior. They were waiting for God 
to send the Messiah, someone that would deliver the people into relationship with him. And there had been prophecies and they were anxiously waiting the Messiahs. And one of the, one of the horrific things in scripture is that the Jews, the rejecting Jesus because they failed to see with their very own eyes that the Messiah had, had come and, and he, he was embodied in, in Jesus. And yet they failed to see it through their own eyes. They thought that he was going to come and be a political leader. They thought that he was going to come and destroy evil, wipe away world peace, destroy their enemies, establish an earthly kingdom with Israel as kind of the predominant nation of their world. And Jesus comes on the, on the scene. And although these prophecies, many have been yet to be fulfilled, and we believe in the millennial kingdom, they will. It was such a, a shocking statement because they didn't even really believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And even more shocking was that the peace that he came to offer was to the Gentiles just as freely as it was to the Jews. The second outrageous claim that we see from the life of Jesus, by way of just introduction this morning, is found in Luke 19.10. can turn there this morning. Not only did Jesus say that when you see me, you see the Father, but he says that he came and that he was the Savior. In Luke 19.10, Jesus is talking about himself, and he says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that were lost. Now, two weeks ago, I shared with you that I believe that there are so many people out there that, that don't realize that they need rescued or saved from, from anything. They think as long as, you know, I do this or I do that, you know, at the end, uh, turn the gospel into kind of a do's and don'ts. And we live in kind of a world that has the ability to undo just about everything. On my computer, you can make a pretty significant error, and you just go to edit, undo, and things are made right. One of the features that I love on the iPhone is if you're typing, you make an error, you shake the phone because that's how they get money for insurance claims with broken glass, right? But you make an error on the iPhone, you just simply shake it, and it says, would you like to redo, and you hit hit yes. And there are a lot of people out there that, that really don't feel like they need saved from anything. They think in the end, love wins. They think in the end, it all just kind of works out. They think in the end, you can kind of make things right. And, and the reality is, the gospel says there's no such thing as unsinning. Well, if I do enough right things, it'll offset the wrong things. So if I lie and then I open the door for an old person, it just kind of works out. There's no such thing as unsinning. The Bible says that you and I are to repent, that we're to come to God and we're to turn from from sin. And so Luke chapter 19, Jesus is saying that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And I want you to see something about the Savior this morning. Look at how he pursues this individual, because the context of this verse is incredibly important. Because not only is Jesus God, but He's the Savior, and He's pursuing lost people that are far from Him. The context of this verse is Jesus is in the in the city of Jericho, and Zacchaeus is this 
rich man. The Bible says he's kind of like the, the commissioner of the customs. And he's wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus. And, and many of you know the story. You know, you know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know, we, we got this insulting song that we sing, you know, about this little, little, you know, guy. That he runs ahead. He climbs up in this tree. We used to sit in circles and eat goldfish while we'd sing this, right? And so you get this idea that Zacchaeus is running, he's climbing this tree in public, which would have been deemed as, as something that was indign- uh, something that was very indignified in that particular culture. He climbs up in this sycamore tree, and, and you have to pay attention to the details here. Because when I grew up in church, and I think a lot of times what we do is we have this picture that we color with crayons that has Jesus standing or Jesus walking. And Zacchaeus kind of up in this tree, and it's almost like he's climbing, you know, a telephone pole with like two little branches. And Jesus is walking by, and Zacchaeus is just so blatantly obvious, and he's up in this tree, and everybody's like, oh, he's up in the tree. Jesus loves him. Jesus sees him. But you can't, you can't come to that conclusion when you study this particular text. Make no mistake about it. He doesn't want to be seen. He wants a glimpse of Jesus. He wants to run ahead, but he doesn't want to be seen. He's climbing a tree that's very dense. There's a lot of foliage, whatever that word is, foliage, foliage, foliage. And as Jesus is passing by, he's not drawn to this obvious guy that's up in a tree like, hi. This man's hiding from him. He's not right with God. He, he knows something about Jesus, but, but he just wants to kind of get ahead. He wants to climb up and just kind of get his own personal glimpse of Jesus. This short, rejected man in society is sitting alone, hidden in the top of this dense tree. He was a person of respect. He was a person of dignity. Quite frankly, the people hated him because he was ripping them off. And now all of a sudden the Savior is passing by. You've got to get this glimpse in your mind of the Savior. That he's pausing and he's looking up into this tree and the people are like, what's he looking at? They didn't see him. And now all of a sudden this man that wants to be hidden in the top of this tree, it's almost like you took this spotlight and you just went, oh, there's somebody up in that tree. And Jesus, like I said before, he pauses the crowd to minister to what? The one. And so now he's there, the the scene focuses on this guy that's top of the tree. As Jesus says, I must stay at your house. He's like, wait, I just, just wanted to get a glimpse of you. I just wanted to be hidden. I just wanted to run and not have these. And all of a sudden Jesus is like, I must stay at your house. And it's almost as if this happened immediately. That Jesus says, I must stay at your house. So he climbs down and they go immediately to to his house. So the crowd pauses and now he's focused on going to Zacchaeus' house. And so you got to think for a minute because it doesn't talk a whole lot about Mrs. Zacchaeus. But if there was a Mrs. Zacchaeus, and if she was anything like my wife, I have two sick kids today, so she's probably watching online. 
How many of you guys have invited somebody over to the house and you didn't give her a warning? And then you're scrambling and sleeping on the couch, right? No, just kidding. So now all of a sudden Jesus says, I must stay at your house. He comes down, he goes to the house and I'm guessing he opened the door and said, honey, somebody's here. And there's a huge crowd too. They're just going to kind of be around. And she may have been scrambling. We don't know. She's cleaning up. So what am I going to make? What do we have to get ready? What? And it's interesting to me because I believe that this house is a representation of our lives. And one of the things you've got to realize about the Savior is that he comes in places that are not prepared for him. There are so many that say, well, someday... I'll come to God someday. I'll come into right relationship with him. But I've got to sort out this. I've, I've got to clean the tables of my life. I've got to get the room ready. I've got to get the sin stuff figured out. And it's almost like we, we act like we've got to get our lives situated and put together and our homes ready so that we can present them to God when the truth of the matter is the only thing that he once presented is, is your sin. Which is the one reason why we needed what? A savior. And so he comes to this house. We don't know what it looked like to to get ready. But he's simply not waiting for the house to get ready. The only thing that we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. This principle about the savior that he's pursuing lost people. I think that it's so important that you and I share the gospel The good news that God loves people, but make no mistake about it. He's the one that is pursuing people, even while we're sitting this morning at church at whatever time it is right now. His heart is to draw lost people to himself, even when he'll get nothing in return. Think about Jesus dying on the cross, and that thief is next to him with with nails in his hands, nails in his feet. Jesus is not going to get anything out of that guy. He's not going to work, right? He's not going to go anywhere, but, but as he cries out to Jesus, he says, you'll be with me in paradise. It's not so much doing things and getting ready and being prepared for, for him, and then, and then we can present ourselves to God and enter into relationship, but, but Jesus is pursuing this sinner. And, and quite frankly, it really irritated the religious people. Who, who is this guy? That, that he thinks he's the Messiah, he thinks that he's God, he thinks that he's a savior, he's not lining up with our rules and our regulations and our rules and our regulations, and, and, and now he's going and he's eating with this man that's rejected in society because he's ripping people off, he's stealing from their money. Who does he think he is? He's supposed to be at my house, I'm the do's and don'ts guy, and I try to get all the do's right. And he goes and he finds this lunatic up in a tree. I must go to to your house. He didn't say to Zacchaeus, I'm glad that you climbed the tree and worked your way up so I could notice you. He didn't say, you know, I'm glad that you pursued, you know, and and made, you know, a way. Jesus is saying, no, no, salvation. Look at verse 9. He says, salvation has come to this house. This word in the Greek, in the original language, means that, that salvation has come to pass. Jesus 
pursues this man in a tree, says, I must come to your house. And he's standing in the home of this sinner. And he's basically saying, salvation has now been made known to you in history in this moment. And we see from Zacchaeus, he doesn't raise his hand to accept Jesus. It's not like he walks to the front, bows his knee. But we get this idea that he recognized who Jesus was. We get this idea that he's repenting because repentance is not just saying sorry. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry, I made a mistake. Sorry, I was... All of a sudden, he's now turned and he's saying, I'm going to repay people four times what I've taken from them. This idea of trying to make things now, now right. And so beyond Zacchaeus... And Jesus being the Savior, Jesus is the Savior for the Jewish people and and freeing them from their oppression. But you've got to understand the context. The Jewish people for years and years had been held slaves and they're waiting for this Messiah to come and set this earthly kingdom. They're waiting for him to physically deliver them, kind of set them apart, kind of life on earth, you know, would would be perfect and all of these things and And what made this statement so crazy that Jesus says, I'm the savior that you've been waiting for, it's not that he's just going to free them here on earth. But if you believe me, he says, I'm going to prepare for you a place in heaven. And this was outrageous to them because it was almost kind of like Jesus is now adding on to the gospel. That you're going to go and you're going to prepare a place for me. The enemies at that point in time, many of them were the religious leaders of the day. It was a very strong statement that Jesus said, not only am I God, but I'm the Savior. And yet beyond those two statements, there's one more statement that came from the lips of Jesus that really upsets people. This statement, you can go to work and share it with your coworker. Tomorrow, you can tell a family member or a friend. And even when it's said out of a heart of love and compassion and sincerity, so many will say, who the heck do you think you are? You arrogant, prideful bigot. Because it's just as unpopular today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's tough. Because so many of us want to say, John, John 3.16, God loves everybody. God, it'll all just work out. And Not only did Jesus say that I'm God. When you see me, you've seen the Father. Not only did he say I'm the Savior, not just for Zacchaeus. Not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. The most outrageous one is he said, I am the only way to heaven. There are some that when you say this statement, you you care about people and you love them. Wait, Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's God. He's the Savior, and he's the only way to heaven. Well, maybe, can it be one or two, or is it, is it two and one, or is it just two, or is it just one, or is it one, two, or three? And the answer is yes. 
that Jesus said that I am the way in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And it was a very provocative and challenging statement, and it still is today because the reality is that love demands a choice. It doesn't just work out in the end. It doesn't just mean, well, if you do enough things, if you go to church, if you, you know, give in the kettle and you do enough dues, that all of a sudden it just kind of works out. No, Jesus says, the only way that you go to heaven is through me because I'm God, I am the Savior, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. You know, as I was preparing this message about a week or so ago, some of you guys maybe think I kind of throw things together Saturday nights, but about a week and a half ago before Jared came, I was really thinking about this. And then last Sunday, I'm sitting there, and he's like talking about this. And I'm like, okay, Lord, kind of work that out. But he really is the only way to heaven. What I wanted to say... A week and a half, Jared mentioned it last week, and I'll say it just one more time again, is that there are people that have kind of this picture, this idea, it's like this mountain theology where God is is on the top, that us, his prized possession, we're at the bottom of that mountain, and the idea is that we just need to climb our way up to God. Some people take the direct route, whatever that looks like. Others take the winding route. Road, but at the end, it all just kind of works out. And that, that is nowhere found in Scripture. Ah, it just works out. I want to illustrate it to you this way. For those of you that know us, you know that we have four children. And one of the things that my kids just absolutely love doing is they just want me to hold them. And Alara is right now seven, so it's like, you know a chiropractor after I hold her for a while, but what she'll do is, is the goal is to get into her father's arms. What she'll do is when I'm not looking, she'll jump off the couch and she just kind of wraps her neck, hands around me or her arms around my neck and just kind of grabs me and she tries to swing her way around and tries to, you know, monkey her way into my arms. Audra, on the other hand, she, she's just, you know, stands on the ground And she just jumps up and she tries to crawl and, you know, she's just trying to get up into her dad's arms. And it's just a fun thing that our kids enjoy doing right now. Amos just grabs whatever he can grab, belt, pants, shirt, and he just kind of pulls his way, tries to work his way up to get into his father's arms. But Aislinn now is whatever, I forget how many months old, but let's say eight (laughs) months, months, months. And she just kind of stands there. She pulls her way up to the couch and she knows there is absolutely no possible way I'm going to get into my father's arms except to look up at him and to smile. And I'll tell you, that smile right now with that one tooth, it's just so adorable. And I reach down and I pick her up. Why do you say that? Well, I believe that religion is man's way to try to work its way up into God's arms. Well, if I do just enough good things, if I just 
pull my way, if I just climb in some way, if I say enough prayers, if I go to a temple, if I do this and I do that and I serve and I vote Republican 100% of the time and I watch Fox News and I, you know, just all of these things as the worship team comes back. If I do all of these things right, I can climb up the mountain, I can get up into my, my father's arms. And, and, the, and the truth of the matter is that that's not going to happen has nothing to do with you and I doing things. It's not rules and regulations. Rules and regulations. You do enough doing and all of a sudden you can climb your way up and get into your father's arms. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is God, that he's the savior and he's the one that he reaches down and picks you and I up. In spite of ourselves, in spite of the mess of our lives, you don't have to do anything to, to bring yourself to a place where you're presentable to God. He, he pursued you. He reached down and he grabbed you and I, and he's continuing to do that all around the world today. He is the only way to heaven, though. So many have either grown up in church with pastors that are just angry, And they were constantly told, you got to do this, you got to do this. Why? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. You ever just see people that are, that are followers of Jesus and they're just angry people. And I'm like, why are you mad? Like, you're a child of God. Please tell your face, you know. Smile. God loves people. But he did say, you know what? I am the way the truth and the life. Nobody gets into the Father's arms except through Jesus. And thank God that he reached down and he picked us up. I want this church to always be a place that people can come that are far from God. I want our body here to be people that when we are out in the community, that we're in our homes, that we're in the grocery store, that the good news of the gospel is that people don't have to do anything except present themselves to God. Acknowledge that they've sinned. Acknowledge that they need a solution for sin in their lives and that Jesus is the one and only way to heaven. It's the good news of the gospel. I am the way. The truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Would you close your eyes this morning? Maybe you're here today. And you'd say that the condition of your life before God is you say, I just, I'm a sinner. I kind of want a glimpse of Jesus, but I feel like my life isn't presentable. It's not ready, it's not prepared for me to experience him. Maybe you feel that way today. I would challenge you to spend time in the New Testament and look at the life of Jesus and see time and time and time and time again he was reaching down and he was rescuing people. There's a woman that was pulled out of bed in the middle of adultery one day, thrown at Jesus' feet, 
and the religious crowd's the one that wants to stone her because the religion says we want grace for ourselves, justice for everybody else, and as they want to murder this lady, Jesus looks down at her in her sin. The Bible says that he forgave her. Because that's what he does. Maybe you're here today, you desire a relationship with Jesus for the very, very first time. You say, well, Zach, does that promise that everything in my life will be perfect from this day forward? No, it doesn't exempt you from the challenges because we live in a fallen and a a broken world. But what it does promise is that God is good. You can never overestimate his goodness in our lives and he will be with you. He will carry you through whatever you have to walk through in this life and he'll be there for you. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus and today, for the very first time, you say, today's the day that I want to raise my hand, come into right relationship with Jesus. I'm not going to invite you to come forward or fill out a card or do anything like that, but I just want to pray for you before we receive communion together. And those that are preparing communion, you can get ready to do that. But maybe that's you today. just want a chance to pray with you. Would you just raise your hand this morning? Lord, I desire a relationship with Jesus. I want to know that I have peace with God, that my sins are forgiven, that heaven is my home. Lord, you see each person that's here today. And Lord, we confess our sin to you. Lord, we acknowledge that we need a Savior so much in our lives. And Jesus, we come to you and we're grateful for what you've done for us. As we take communion in the next few minutes, Lord, we never want to take for granted the broken body of our Lord Jesus and the blood that was spilled on our behalf. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we come to you today. We are so grateful for what you've done. If you're here today, you just feel like you just need to recommit your life in some way to the Lord. I just challenge you as the ushers come and begin to distribute communion. Just take a minute. Would you ask the Lord to forgive you, to cleanse you this morning? Would you just thank him and celebrate what he's done for us? I think sometimes when we take communion, the spirit behind it, we're almost acting as if Jesus is still on the cross. And the reality is the Bible says that he's risen, that he's alive, that he loves you, that he's pursuing you. And Jesus, we're so grateful for what you've done for us. Would you hold the elements today? We believe that you don't have to be a member or participant of Access Church, but you have to be right with God, right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just hold the elements and we'll take them together in a few moments.